Our call to confession this morning comes from Psalm 103, and looking in particular at verses 13 through 14, and, and as I was uh, thinking about these verses and, and just within the context of, of our call to confession, we, we realize that verses 13 and 14 of Psalm 103 do offer uh, great reason uh, for us to come before the Lord, great comfort in coming before the Lord, um, but they are verses that are not alone. Uh, one of the things I was taught very early on uh, in Bible college is that context is king. Uh, they made us repeat that mantra over and over, so it's emblazoned on my mind. Context is king, and these two verses actually sit in the context of a psalm that gives us great reason and hope to come before the Lord. And so as our call to confession this morning, what I want to do is I want to read Psalm 103 over us uh, and listen to the words of David here recorded for us, and then in light of the truth that David proclaims, come before the Lord, lay our sins before him, knowing that he is like a father who comes to us in compassion. So hear the words of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. If you are able this morning, would you please kneel with me as we confess our sins before the Lord. This morning we are looking at a, a more reasonable portion of scripture the past two Sundays. We've been taking large chunks, uh, two chapters at a time, big portions of the narrative of Jacob. This morning we're going to stop and we're going to look at chapter 34 uh, by itself. Uh, not a great story, uh, a hard story, as you run into many in the Bible, but a purposeful one at that. So we're going to be reading the whole of the chapter. So if you have your Bible, uh, open up and look at Genesis 34 with me. So hear the word of the Lord. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. 
So Shechem spoke to his father, saying, his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by laying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open before you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to his father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask, me, ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, and his father Hamor deceitfully, because they had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we, will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give you our daughters, to, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. The words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his, of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was uh, in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all and their wives, and all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you speak to us when we pray, Lord, that you would give wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see your truth, Lord, and that we would walk in obedience to your word and so glorify and honor you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at chapter 34, um, it has been described by some people as a boulder out of place. Right, a narrative that just kind of seems to insert itself into the larger narrative of Genesis, and in particular, this Jacob narrative that we've been on, uh, and seems so jarring uh, to what we've been reading that, that we really kind of are, are left to ask, why is it here? Why now? 
what is the point and what is the purpose? Uh, I would argue that those would be extremely valid questions if this were the first and only time uh, that Moses were to do such a thing. Uh, there are actually several times throughout Genesis that Moses seems to insert these rather out-of-place narratives. Uh, we saw one earlier in the life of uh, Isaac, uh, where we have Isaac's, uh, the birth of Jacob and Esau recorded for us, and all of a sudden we have this story right after that of Isaac and Abimelech. No mention of children, no mention of uh, anything, and we just have this story inserted there. We will see one uh, in a few weeks that uh, Kyle uh, we'll be preaching as we look at this story of Judah and Tamar just inserted right into the Joseph narrative. And so there's multiple times where we find these narratives that, that, that kind of seem like they might be out of place, but really aren't out of place. And so that would lead us to the conclusion that Genesis 34 is not out of place. It's exactly where it should be, and it serves a larger purpose, not only with the, the whole narrative of Genesis, but really within the Jacob narrative as well. And so looking at this passage, what, what my desire is this morning is to just understand how it fits within the larger narrative and then also really understand what I, what I think is one of the major undercurrents within this text, which is the relationship between, between the people of God and the people of the land. Or, or in, a, in a broader concept, the people of God, uh, how do the people of God live in and amongst pagan nations and pagan peoples? I think that's one of the things that this narrative is, is hitting at uh, uh, quite uh, distinctly. Um, when we think about this narrative, again, seeing its place within the larger Genesis narrative, we realize that, that there's points at which we've been prepared for Genesis 34, right? And there's also ways in which Genesis 34 prepares us for, for what we're going to encounter as we move through the biblical narrative. Uh, ways in which we've been prepared for Genesis 34, um, we could go back to the baby birthing marathon that we read earlier in Genesis 29 and 30. There, after Jacob is tricked into marrying both Rachel and Leah, we read of this kind of this uh, competition, right, to, to give children uh, to Jacob. And it, that chapter, 29 and 30, records a birth of 12 children. Eleven of those children are boys, and one child, one lone child, is a girl. Now, that's not to say that Jacob had only one girl in that time period, that he only had one daughter, but in a patriarchal society, the birth of daughters was not generally recorded because everything passed through the male descendants. And yet, when we look at Genesis chapter 30, 19 through 21, this is what we read. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So he called his name Zebulun. She called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So what seemed like this little kind of like throwaway addition there in chapter, uh, chapter 30 that we have six sons, oh yeah, and here's this daughter, Dinah. Now we start to understand why the birth of Dinah was recorded for us because she becomes obviously a major part of the story here in Genesis 34. Also, as we look at Genesis 34, in particular verse 1, uh, the, Moses takes great pains uh, to remind us uh, that Dinah is the daughter of Leah. If you look at verse, 30, uh, verse 1 of 34, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob. Uh, this is not useless information for us, because again, if we go back, we remember what the relationship between Jacob and Leah was like. Right? Jacob worked seven years to get Rachel as his wife, the one who was beautiful in form and appearance. He was not working for Leah, who had weak eyes, and yet when his seven years of labor was finished and the big celebration of his marriage was completed, he woke up in the morning and who was next to him? Leah. 
Leah was the unloved one. Leah was the unwanted one. Jacob didn't labor for this woman. This is not the woman he wanted. And we see throughout the narrative that that, that, that disposition towards Leah really continues, that she never really becomes the wanted wife. And so it's not a stretch to assume, or not necessarily assume, but rather conclude that the offspring of Leah, the children of Leah, weren't necessarily viewed with much love, affection, or attention as well. They shared kind of in their mother's unwantedness, right? This relational distinction here would certainly help explain Jacob's lack of emotion and response when he discovers what's happened to his daughter. He finds out that his daughter has been defiled, that is, she has been raped, right? Shechem forcibly had intercourse with her. Jacob finds out about it, and he appears to to do nothing. He, He seems almost rather indifferent to the situation. Now, compare that reaction to Jacob's coming reaction when he finds out that Joseph, the the son of Rachel, is supposedly dead. When he finds out that, what what does he say? He he says, I will not be comforted. I cannot be comforted. I'm going to go down to the grave, not comforted. So we see the way that he responds to the, 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 the supposed death of his son from his favorite wife, and then we see this lack of response that he has to Dinah when he finds out what happens to her. And so we've been kind of prepared as we walk through the Genesis narrative for what we're reading here in Genesis 34. Genesis 34 also prepares us for what we see moving forward in the Genesis narrative. As we get to the end of Jacob's life later on in chapter 49, verses 5 through 7, Jacob is speaking over his sons, his final words and his words of blessing. And and when he gets to uh, 5 through 7, he's speaking specifically to Levi and to Simeon. And there he says to them, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Clearly, in Genesis 49, as Jacob is speaking over his sons, the events of Genesis 34 are front and center in Jacob's mind. To the extent that as they come into the allotment, as they come into the land, they are separated. They're put apart from one another. In fact, we know that Levi, the Levites, have no inheritance in the land. And Simeon, if you read through the Old Testament, Simeon is is all but absorbed and lost into the tribe of Jacob. Uh, and so the, this, this word that he speaks over them uh, later on and, and the way in which they, uh, their history plays out is, in, is intimately tied to what takes place here in 34. But even beyond what we read in Genesis 49, what we read in Genesis 34 really also prepares us uh, for the conquest of the land to come. Right, so all this time in the patriarchal narratives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been living in and around the promised land. God has continually promised this land to them. He has said again and again, to your offspring, I will give this land. But he also assured Abraham that it was not going to be for some time. His people are going to leave, they're going to be slaves for 400 years, and then they're going to come back to the land. Why? God says, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. And we know how the history unfolds. We know that God brings his people back into the land. He brings them into the land, and they become a sword of judgment upon the nations in the land so that they dispossess, as Arnie read this morning, larger and more powerful nations than themselves, so bringing God's judgment upon the sinfulness of the nations of the people who live in the land. 
And here in Genesis 34, we get a foreshadowing of that. A foreshadowing of the judgment that's going to come upon the land. But what's interesting is, Arnie also read this morning from Deuteronomy, is we need to be reminded that God using his people in the land and giving them the land and dispossessing the nations that are there is not because of the inherent righteousness of God's people. It's not because they are inherently righteous that God is doing this. God, in fact, says multiple times in Deuteronomy, as was read, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness. It is because of God's purposes and plans for his people, for the nations, and for his creation. And because God has promised to do what he said he will do. Now, when we think about this, Genesis 34, in the the more narrow context of what we've been reading most recently, this chapter comes right after we have seen major change in Jacob. We've seen Jacob become a a very different individual. That 20 years that he spent with Laban seems to have humbled him. It seems to have ingrained in him this faith, this trust, and this understanding of who God is and what God is going to do in his life. And yet when we come to Genesis 34, it's almost like we're, we're smacked in the face, right? And reminded again uh, that men are men at best, right? As much as we've seen change and transformation in the life of Jacob, we are reminded again that he is a man who struggles with sin. He is a man who struggles with his own sinfulness, his own lack of trust, his own lack of faith. In fact, as you look at the chapter, Jacob seems to have only one concern, One concern and one concern only throughout this whole story, and that's his own safety, his own skin, right? In fact, he looks at Simeon and Levi and says, what have you done? The nations are going to gather now, and they're going to kill me. They're going to come and kill me and my whole household. And that's all he can think about in this. Now, he's been, this is a guy who just, who just got done facing this immense fear of his brother Esau with 400 men coming to greet him, coming to see him, and he watched God's provision. He watched God provide. He watched God protect. He watched God bring him safely to where he is, and now here he is again after this, this large, big, high moment of God's provision and protection, scared for his own skin, forgetting that God has said, I will be with you, forgetting that God has said, I will not leave you until I accomplish what I have said in you. And so we're reminded again that Jacob (coughs) is a man, much like you and I, one who struggles with sin, struggles with faith, and struggles with his relationship uh, to entrusting the Lord. And so we see that Genesis 34 is not out of place, but rather fits nicely within not only the larger narrative of what God is doing, but also within this unique Jacob narrative, especially as it's getting ready to be brought to an end. Now, as we turn our attention uh, to the narrative itself, we see some of the same dynamics that, have, that we have seen throughout the patriarchal narratives, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob continue to be very complex characters, right? They are men of great faith, and they are also men of great failure. And they're constant reminders to us that, God, uh, that the promises of God are not dependent upon the perfection of man. God is going to be faithful to his covenants because God is a faithful God. And we could stop right there for a moment and just say that is encouraging. Because as we read in our our, our call to confession this morning, uh, David, as, as he's calling on us to bless the Lord, what does he say? He says his righteousness is to children's children. God has made these great covenantal promises that his his blessings and his grace will roll through generations. 
And, and what he tells us in his words so often is that these covenantal promises are not dependent upon our perfection. Now, they are not completely and utterly separated from this call to obedience, right? We're called to be obedient. We're called to walk in faith to the Lord. But that is a product of God's own blessing in our lives, such that his promises aren't dependent upon that, but his promises produce that in us. And so we're reminded, again, as we look at the life of the patriarchs and as we're prepared to move through the story of God's word from Old Testament into New Testament, that God's promises are not dependent upon the perfection of his people, but they are completely dependent upon himself to do what he has said he will do. And so as we looked at Genesis 34, we encounter some of the same uh, broken and unsettling family dynamics that we have kind of become used to seeing, unfortunately, within the patriarchal families. Right? Ja Jacob's lack of affection for Leah has translated to a lack of affection for his children. There's no doubt that Simeon and Levi react the way they do in part because of their father's failure to act. Now, they overreact, right? Simeon and Levi are overreacting. The punishment that they give does not fit the crime, but no doubt they're driven to that because they look at a father who is doing nothing, who appears absolutely indifferent to the suffering of his daughter. And in fact, his unwillingness... Jacob's unwillingness to act on behalf of his daughter to protect her at the, at the, at the um, excuse of, uh, of protecting himself is, is an unsettling family trait we've seen in Abraham and Isaac as well. Remember, Abraham and Isaac both were willing to put their wives forward and risk the purity of their wives, right? Because they're so beautiful, and if somebody sees you, they're going to kill me and take you. So it's better, it's better that some man just randomly come and take you than I die. Both Abraham and Isaac did this, and now Jacob, in a, in a different way, is, is following suit. He is, he is okay with what's taken place with his daughter or what's happened to his daughter, so long as it doesn't end with him being killed. We see, again, fear lack of faith, lack of trust, all issues that we've seen in Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And all in all, as we read Genesis 34, it is a very messy story full of very messy peoples, people. And attempts to really lay blame at the feet of any one person is difficult. I mean, we might, we might want to look at Shechem and say, well, Shechem, he, he raped Dinah, he forced himself upon Dinah, and that's evil and wicked, and yes, it is, but then that action turned into genuine love and affection for this woman, and the scripture says he spoke tenderly to, towards her, and he longed for her, and he wanted to make her his wife, right? And we look, at, we look at Simeon and Levi, and we say, certainly, they have overreacted, they have done what is wrong, they have done what is evil, and yet we understand that they look at a father who does nothing, and the, the narrative even closes with this question, should our sister be treated as a prostitute? I mean, they, they look at their father, and they, they, they deride his, his lack of indignation, his lack of anger, right? Jacob's just standing there saying nothing, and as soon as his sons hear about it in the field, what do they do? They rush home, full of frustration, full of anger, and full of indignation. And so as we look at this story, it, it is messy. It, it's, it's difficult to, to kind of go through it and say, well, here's the clear-cut good, and here's the clear-cut bad, and, and here's the right, and here's the wrong, because it is, I think in a lot of ways, Genesis 34 is a lot like life. Life is messy. And, and, and understanding how all these parts and pieces work out together isn't always so clear-cut. Annie has a, a book that she's read, uh, 
I'm assuming she's read it. It's at the house. I'm going to go ahead and credit my wife with reading the book um, called When Life and Beliefs Collide. And, and, and the, the point of that book is like we have these firm convictions, we have these firm beliefs, and there's times where things just smack into them, smack into them and really challenge them. So how, how do we deal with, with a devastating cancer diagnosis? How, how, does, that, how does that attack and, and, and assault our, our faith and our trust and, our, and, and the things we hold firmly? How, how do we deal with the death of a child, the loss of a child? How do we deal with the loss of a job or family strife? Like all these things that want to challenge our, our, our life and our faith and our, and our convictions. I mean, we see it played out throughout the whole entire scripture. We see it played out in the life of Israel as they're interacting with the nations around them. We see it played out in the churches. It's dealing with the reality of persecution. And so life is messy. It really is. And following the Lord and trusting the Lord and pursuing the Lord is, is oftentimes not as clear as we would want it to be. And Genesis 34 is, is a really good reminder of that to us, that following God oftentimes is, is a difficult struggle where we are trying to understand how all these pieces fit together. For our purposes this morning, um, I, I, I want to turn our attention just to the beginning of the narrative. Uh, the situation that kind of kicks the whole story uh, into gear. So look with me at verses 1 through 4 again. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, excuse me, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now, at this point in the story, in Genesis 34, as we've gotten this far in Genesis, and especially in the Abrahamic narrative, uh, there is a clear understanding, uh, biblically, of, of, the, of the separation of, of the people of Abraham from the other nations, right? Uh, we see this in Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham is called to God. He's called away from his family, he's called away from his home, and he is called to the Lord. Right? God doesn't necessarily give him a particular place or particular instructions, God calls him to himself. He is selecting Abraham, calling Abraham out, and calling him to himself. And then later on, Abraham is given uh, the covenantal sign of circumcision. And he is instructed that all men who are born into his home are to be circumcised and so set off, right? Uniquely marked off as belonging to the family of Abraham and so belonging to the Lord. And we see this sense of separation kind of not just in the circumcision, but we see it permeate and move out into their understanding of marriage, right? So in Genesis 24, when uh, uh, Abraham is looking for a wife for Isaac, what does he do? He makes his servant swear, saying, you will not take for my son a wife from among these peoples, but you will go back to my own people and you will get a wife for my son from there. On the flip side of that, we saw uh, the trouble that intermarriage brings, Right? We remember uh, Esau, who married uh, Hittite women, and literally it said it made life miserable for uh, Isaac and Rebekah. And then later on, when they see that they've sent Jacob away to go find a different wife, what does Esau do? He goes out and he marries two more women from the land, just to make life even worse for his parents. And so we see in that event, the flip side, how intermarriage brings trouble to the family. And so I think it's safe to say that at this point in the Genesis narrative, the people of God are a people, or the, people, the offspring of Abraham are a people who are called to uniquely belong to the Lord. 
They, they are called and they are set off to be his people. Now, this gets fleshed out, obviously, as we move through the Old Testament narrative. Arnie read from 1 Peter this morning, and, and Peter says, you're a chosen race, a, a, a royal nation, a, a holy priesthood, a people for his own peculiar possession. Where, where do those terms come from? Is, is Peter just inventing those? Well, no, they, they're, they're rooted in, in Old Covenant language. They're rooted in Old Testament language of God speaking to his people. And so God is creating a people for his own peculiar possession. He's calling them to himself. He's marking them off as his own, and they are to be distinct from the nations. And, and I, I bring all this up, not because you don't know it, but I bring it all up because I think it gives context uh, to Dinah's actions in, in verse 1. Uh, while the act of going out to see the women of the land might seem simple and innocent, uh, the language actually hints at more questionable motives here. Uh, it's true for all the Hebrew scholars in the room that the word that is used there for see is the, the basic word that's used, which means to see, to look at, to behold with your eyes. But like we know with most language, there is range of meaning and use to language that would uh, paint a different picture than just simply looking. In fact, the same word is used later in Genesis 49 or 42, verse 9, where Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. Right, Joseph knows they're his brothers, and he's, he is uh, talking to them, and he accuses them of being spies. And what does he say? He says, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. Certainly, Joseph isn't accusing them of just coming and looking at the land. Joseph, Joseph is accusing them of having ulterior motives in their looking at the land. You're coming to see, to observe, to understand this land so that you can take advantage of it. In fact, uh, this comes across also in the Septuagint translation for all of our Greek scholars. I'm trying to cover all my bases this morning. Because I know when I said Hebrew scholars, the Greek scholars are like, well, what about me? And then if you're Jeff, you're, just, you're eating all this up because you're a Hebrew and Greek scholar. Uh, this comes across in the Septuagint translation uh, where the connotation of that word used in the Septuagint uh, has a connotation which means observing well with the, with the intention of learning. So what this means is that when, when Dinah goes out to see the locals, uh, she's not just going out to, to see. Uh, she's going out because she has interest. She's going out because she wants to observe what's going on. Uh, she's, she's going out because there, there is a draw. Her attention is piqued, and she wants to know, learn, and observe how the people of the land are living. Now, this is not to say that what, what happens to her was her fault. But, it is, but she did put herself in a situation where she was exposed to danger and consequently exposed to men with wicked intentions. I was reading one commentator, and they were talking about this section, and they said, you know, uh, she goes out to see the women, and most likely maybe one of the women in, introduced her to some of the men. Right? So this, again, is not to put the blame on Dinah to say she brought this upon herself, but it is to say that she put herself in this situation, in, into a, a situation with the pagan people of the land, whereby she was exposed to danger, and not only exposed to danger, but exposed to pagan men with wicked intentions. And we think about this situation, right? This situation here, which really sets off the whole entire narrative. Right? The whole story of Genesis 34 is set off on the events that take place in verses 1 through 4. I think we see that there is this underlying current concerning the way in which the people of God relate to the people of the land. 
Now, God, like we said, is, is, is calling a people to himself, and, and God is giving them a land, but it's not an empty land. Uh, in fact, we think about Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac were sojourners in the land, right? The, the Bible's explicit about that. Jacob has actually purchased property now. Jacob has purchased property, and he's living in and among these pagan peoples. And so I think part of what Genesis 34 is hitting at is this reality of what does it look like to be the people of God who are called to be separate, who are called to be holy, and yet live in and among pagan people. Now, as we, we think about answering that question, uh, what does it look like to live as the people of God in the midst of pagan nations, I think we need to recognize that there's some, some differences between uh, how this question is addressed in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, there, there's some differences there. In the Old Covenant... Uh, the people of God were, were called as a nation, right? They were called as a nation, they were codified, they were given a law, uh, and they were given a land, much like every nation has. A nation has laws, a nation has land, and a nation has peoples. And they were to occupy this land, and when they occupied this land, they would go in as God's means of judgment upon the nations of this land. So God's calling himself, uh, people to himself, he's establishing a nation, he's giving them a law, he's giving them a land, and then he's using his people as a means of judgment on the nations who already inhabit the land. As Arnie read from Deuteronomy, you're going to dispossess these people. The law that they are given is a law that governs every aspect of their life, every part of their life, going down to the type of clothing they wear. If you want to go by typical or traditional maybe distinctions, it covers their civil life, their ceremonial life, and their moral life. Things like intermarriage are completely and utterly forbidden, and sin is often punished with death in this covenantal community. Their religious life was singularly centered upon the temple in Jerusalem and the daily sacrificial system that was carried out there by the priests and the Levites. And so what we see as we look at the people of God in the Old Testament is that in every aspect of their life, every aspect of who they were as people, they were meant to be set apart and holy unto the Lord. Right? Everything about them was to cry out and declare that they were a unique people, a peculiar possession, belonging to the Lord and the Lord alone. Now, we know the history of Israel, and we know that they immensely struggled with this reality. They struggled with maintaining their uniqueness. They struggled with maintaining their peculiarness. And eventually they are cast out of the land. They are, they are sent into exile because they have become like the nations. In fact, Isaiah, the great prophet, what does he say to them as he addresses them in chapter 1? He says, listen up, you, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. Right? So they've gotten to a place where there is no distinction. There is no difference between the people of God and the people of the land. Now as we move into the new covenant, the people of God is not a nation established in a land, but it is a people from every tribe, tongue, and language. And I, I want to say on the front side here, uh, for all my uh, covenantal scholars, I'm covering every single base today, uh, that I am not implying in a, 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 as strong a distinction as you, you might think. I, I see the new covenant as mysteries that were hidden now being revealed and made clearly known. So the new covenant people are not a nation, but people from every tribe, tongue, and language. New Covenant people, we are given a law. It is a law, though, that is one that is understood fully through the coming of Christ Jesus. A law that Christ himself summarized in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We are not given a particular land to rule, but we are sent into all creation. 
I heard Arnie mention this morning in Sunday school, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Where does Christ send his people? He sends his people to the ends of the earth. Our land to conquer is not a small area over in the Middle East, but our land to conquer is the whole entire creation. And we are not sent out as means of judgment, bringing swords meant to judge and dispossess the people of the land, but we are sent out like Paul as ambassadors of God, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling on all men everywhere to repent, believe the gospel, and be saved. Our religious life is not centered upon a temple in one location, but our religious life is centered upon Christ, the fullest revelation of the Father. And our bodies now are described as temples of the living God as the Spirit comes and dwells in us and empowers us and sends us out to accomplish the mission that the Father has given us. And so what we see in the new covenant is that in every way, in every aspect of our life, we are called to be people set apart and holy unto the Lord. So while there are differences between the covenants, the call of God upon his people remains the same. We are to be a people set apart for the Lord, living lives of holiness unto God. We heard that read this morning from 1 Peter. Peter, who, who takes these old covenant identities and he looks at the church and he says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own peculiar possession. So now you live your life to proclaim his excellencies. That was Israel's goal all along, was to be this nation in a land, in a place, doing what? Proclaiming the excellencies of God. And they failed. They failed so desperately that Christ comes what does Christ do? Christ perfectly, perfectly proclaims the excellencies of God, goes to the cross, dies, buried, resurrected, ascends, now empowers us and sends us out to do what? To proclaim the excellencies of God, right? This is the same Peter who said earlier in the chapter, you should be holy as the one who called you is holy. Now, both of those terms are slightly vague, Proclaiming the excellencies and being holy. Holy, maybe we have a better handle on, right, what it means to be holy. But proclaiming the excellencies of God. How, how do we do that? If, that? if that's our mission as the people of God, if our, if our purpose is to live our lives in such a way that they're set apart for the Lord, we're holy unto the Lord, and that purpose is to proclaim his excellencies, how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, Peter goes on in 1 Peter, and he begins to give clear understanding of what that looks like to proclaim the excellencies of God. And, and what does he say in 1 Peter? You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you want to. But just walking through what, what Arnie read this morning, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentile Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. How do we proclaim the excellencies of God? Well, Peter would say that we, we keep our conduct pure. We fight against the, the, the temptations of the flesh, which wage war against us. We fight temptations against uh, the world, which would come and seek to undo us. I mean, think about Dinah, right? In, in, in chapter 34, verse 1, why does she want to go out and see the women of the land? Why? Because there's temptation there. There's a temptation that the world has. There's a temptation that the world and the things of the world has 
on us. Uh, Christ acknowledges this in the, in the parable of the sower. As he's talking about the seed being scattered, and he talks about where that seed lands. And he says, some of it landed amongst rocky soil. And what happened? The cares and the concerns of this life rose up and choked it out so that it bore no fruit. Right? The cares and the concerns of this world, the things that this world values. And when I say world, I'm using it in the Johannian way to speak, or well, no, I should say more the Pauline way, to speak of that sinful realm set in opposition to the Lord. So the world has temptations that it levies towards us seeking to lead us to come and see, to come and see what the world has to offer. And yet we're not called to come and see, we're called to proclaim, right? We're, we're, not, we're not passive, we're, we're active. We're proclaiming the excellences of God through our conduct, through our behavior, such that our lives declare the greatness and the glory, not of ourselves or of what the world values, but our lives declare the greatness and the glory of God. Now, Arnie, Arnie already mentioned this, but I, I feel safe in doing this. Uh, we think of our, our, our sister Lauren and our brother Canaan and, and what they're going through, and others as well. I know others, Michael Pastor at, a, at another church in town, and then there's uh, Kayla uh, in, in uh, uh, Rigney. And, and so we you know many people, right? And, and, and the world would tell you that there's a particular way that you should respond to suffering. The world would tell you there's a particular way that you should respond to hardship, that you should respond to difficulty. This is what it should do to you, and this is how you should respond. And yet, and yet, what do we see in these families and these lives? We see a biblical way of responding to it, of in the midst of hardship and difficulty and sorrow, proclaiming the excellencies of God, God's excellencies. Right, so as the people of God who live in amongst a pagan world, a world that seems constantly set in opposition to the things of Christ, how do we live? We live proclaiming his excellencies. We live in such a way that our conduct declares the greatness and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on and he says we are subject. We, we, we are model citizens, so to speak. Paul says the same thing where he says to pray for people in positions of power that we might live peaceable lives, which is glorifying to God. This is a glorifying thing to God. So we're, we're model citizens. And that doesn't mean we lay over and we take everything that's, that's put on us. But it means we should set the stage of what it looks like to respectfully engage people in, in positions of power. Praying for them. Asking God's blessing and wisdom upon them. And I've heard those things done in our church. I've heard us pray for people in positions of power that we vehemently disagree with. But what do we pray? God, give them wisdom. God, lead them so that they might do and act according to your word. If it be your will, Father, change and transform their hearts so that they might know Christ. This is the way we're militant, right? This is the way the people of God are militant, not brandishing swords and charging against the courthouse, but through prayer, through beseeching the Lord, through living lives that reflect the greatness and the glory of the gospel so that when evildoers come and try to say, hey, wait a minute, you're this and you're that, their, their, their accusations fall flat. And, and our good deeds are like coals burning upon their head because there is no opportunity to make accusations against us. And so Peter calls us to be subject. He calls on us not to use our freedom, right, as a cover-up for evil, but instead do what with our freedom? Make ourselves servants of the Lord. Uh, this, this, Peter is, uh, you gotta, Peter is foot in the mouth Peter, right? The guy who every time Jesus said something, Peter had a retort. And you just read the Gospels, you just eventually want to say, shut up, Peter. Just stop. Just let it go, buddy, this one time. But he doesn't. But he learned much from Christ. He learned much from Christ. 
And one of the things Peter learned from Christ is what it, learned, what it means to be a servant. Jesus, who, who puts the, the, the robe around his waist and begins to wash the feet of his disciples, who's the one that objects to that? It's kind of interesting. Everybody else is like, yeah, that's cool, Jesus. You're just washing my feet. That seems normal. But Peter's like, no, 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 no. You're not washing my feet. This is absurd. And Jesus is like, Peter, if I don't wash you, I have no part with me. And then Peter, <laughs> again, what does Peter do? He goes overboard. Peter's like, let's do the whole body then. Let's do it all, Jesus. If I want to have every part of you, Jesus will wash the whole thing. Jesus is like, whoa, 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 Peter. <laughs> Those who have been cleansed don't need to be clean again, but they need to have their feet washed from time to time, and you are clean. That's one of my favorite passages in the Bible, actually. But, and, and so Peter learned what it was to be a servant from Christ. Christ, you did not count equality with God a thing to be greedily held onto, but emptied himself and came in the form of man and taken the form of a servant. So Peter learned from Christ what it looks like to serve, and he calls on the church. This is how you proclaim the excellencies of God, our God. It's not domineering over others. It's not charging over others. It's not squashing others. It's serving others. And so Peter helps us to see what it looks like to proclaim the excellencies of God honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter says, in doing all these things, what are you doing? You're proclaiming God's excellencies. You are living as a people who are his peculiar possession. You are living as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are living as those set apart for God's own purpose and use in the midst of a pagan nation. This is a question that Jacob should have been asking with his family as he purchased property in the land. He should have gathered his family around and he said, listen, we are called unto the Lord. How do we live among these people? Jacob, like those before him, I would argue, failed to rightly protect, instruct, and lead his family. And we see that time and time and time again. But we are faced with the same exact question. How do we live as the people of God among pagan nations? How do we live as the people of God in a world that seems set against the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I think Peter at least points us in the right direction when he calls on us to be people who live proclaiming the excellencies of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that as we do that, we are living as we are called to live. God will honor our conduct and God will use us to bring other people to himself. God will be exalted, Christ will be exalted, and people will be saved as we live as a people uniquely set apart to the Lord, glorifying and honoring him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your goodness. We thank you, Father, that you have called us to yourself through Christ Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live in a way that glorifies and honors Christ, that we would live as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own peculiar possession, Father, that we would realize that you have given us your spirit so that we might walk in obedience and so that we might proclaim your excellencies, so that we might make you known. And Father, would you empower us to do that, I pray, all the more. Would you empower us, I pray, to engage our neighbors and those around us with the truth of the gospel. As Paul called himself an ambassador, calling out on people to be reconciled to Christ, may we call out on our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, and our family who are lost, and call on them and say, please be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. May we, may we be mighty warriors for the gospel message, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So I speak these words of Christ over you. The Lord 
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his counts upon you and give you peace. Let us go this week declaring the excellencies of the God who has called us out of death and into his marvelous light.